Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Greetings. I'm Chris Bernheisel. I'm a professor of family and community medicine at the University of Cincinnati and a podcast lead for Cardio's team best practices. I'm excited to have Dr. Jackson Wright Jr. with me to discuss effective treatments for hypertension. Jackson is a co-lead of Cardio's team best practice and emeritus professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Jackson has had significant role in nearly all the major hypertension clinical outcome trials conducted over the past two decades, has published extensively, and has also served on the three latest U.S. National Hypertension Guideline panels. He was primary investigator of one of the five clinical center networks and first author of the primary results for the systolic blood pressure intervention trial, SPRINT trial, we will discuss today. Man, it is so great to be here with you today, Jackson. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we'll describe two important clinical trials, SPRINT and also the STEP trial, and how both have influenced the global blood pressure recommendations from different organizations. We'll also explain the evidence concerning hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothalidone and describe common errors in medical management of hypertension avenues to mitigate these errors. Now, I hate to say this, Jackson, but I really struggle with what the goal blood pressure should be for my patients. When I try to review guidelines, I get lost in all the different organizations. It seems like there's a billion different organizations. They all release different guidelines and they seem to have all different abbreviations. It looks like an alphabet soup sometimes when I look at the table. It's only compounded by the organizations seem to have different recommendations for blood pressure cutoffs. Help me out. What should I be shooting for? Yes, I can see how that can be confusing. I think one component is that uh, different guidelines, first of all, came out at different times. And so that there may be a difference in the evidence that the organizations were evaluating. It is also important to note that the organizations may also be focusing on a subgroup of individuals that represents their patient panel. There has been an attempt uh, recently to try to unify the uh, guidelines they come out with the same message. But I think a good starting point is to review the two major trials scheduled for today's discussion that have been quite influential. The first is the systolic blood pressure intervention trial, as you mentioned, the SPRINT trial. This trial compared the results in over 9,300 patients over age 50 with hypertension who were randomized to a target systolic blood pressure of the usually recommended uh, less than 140 millimeters of mercury versus a lower goal of less than 120 millimeters of mercury. Uh, The trial population was diverse, with uh, diverse in age, with almost 28% of the participant population being over age 75. It was uh, diverse in race ethnicity, with almost uh, 30% of the study population being black, 11% Hispanic. 28% had chronic kidney disease, and 20% had pre-existing cardiovascular disease. This trial was scheduled to last for five years, but it was actually stopped after 
a review by the Trials Data Safety and Monitoring Board at 3.3 years when the analysis of the data revealed that compared to those randomized less than 140 millimeter mercury target, those randomized to the 120 millimeter mercury target had a 27% lower risk of cardiovascular events. Uh, That included uh, heart attacks, stroke, heart failure, cardiovascular death, and acute coronary syndrome. It also uh, revealed a 25% lower incidence of all-cause mortality. In addition, in a sub-study of SPRINT, the SPRINT MIND sub-study that looked at dementia in blood pressure control, patients treated to less than 120 target showed a significant 19% reduction in the percent of patients progressing from normal cognition to mild cognitive decline, and a 17% reduction in those who actually develop probable dementia which did not reach statistical significance. This was followed by the strategy of blood pressure intervention in the elderly hypertensive patients, or the STEP trial. Now, this trial compared a Chinese population of 8,500 patients, 60 to 80 years of age, treated to a systolic blood pressure between 110 and 130, to one treated to a systolic blood pressure target between 130 and 150, and showed uh, similar results uh, for the same cardiovascular outcomes. Importantly, both trials were able to both achieve and maintain the uh, blood pressure targets that they were assigned to. The results of these studies uh, have been supported by meta-analyses that both whether SPRINT and STEP were included or not. So I think bottom line is that uh, I think there is very clear evidence now that the treatment to a target of less than 140 over 90 is not quite adequate uh, to achieve maximal reduction in cardiovascular events from hypertension. And that's really helpful, and that's really impressive data. Just to summarize, so the SPRINT trial showed benefit of using gold systolic blood pressure under 120 compared to 140, while the STEPS trial showed benefit of 130 versus 150. And both of those studies showed benefit related to cardiovascular mortality, but there's also data related to cognitive decline, which is really impressive. One of my concerns is related to quality of life. Are we driving these blood pressures down, which giving us some mortality benefit related cardiovascular and also cognitive improvement, but are we sacrificing quality of life? Is there any data on this? This was actually looked at within the SPRINT trial. And one is that there was no difference in quality of life in either arm of the study. There was also no difference in safety outcomes, serious adverse events in either arm of the study. Is that true for also falls in older adults? Actually, it was also true for falls. In both SPRINT and in the STEP trial, the uh, falls were no different in those randomized to the more intensive uh, treatment goal versus the usually recommended treatment goals. And so that in SPRINT, the achieved systolic blood pressure was 119. So below the uh, 120 in STEP, it was uh, 126 in those treated to, to the intensive goal. And again, we saw no difference in serious adverse events. Uh, we saw no difference, certainly in falls. And also interestingly, the incidence of orthostatic hypotension was assessed in both studies. The risk of orthostatic hypertension was reduced in those patients treated to the lower goal. And this is something that has been seen in other studies and even in uh, more recent meta-analyses, that aggressive blood pressure treatment 
will reduce rather than increase the instance of orthostatic hypotension. And that's despite, in Sprint, uh, there was a greater number of antihypertensive medications were used in the intensive arm, and there was a greater use of diuretics, particularly chlorothaladone, in the intensive arm. That's so powerful, though. So we have benefit-related to mortality, benefit-related to quality of life, reduced falls, reduction in orthostatic, and also really powerful in there was that the goal blood pressures were truly achieved. Sprint, the goal blood pressure on 120, and they were achieved average on 119, and step is under 130 and averaging on 126. That is really impressive. I want to ask you about the exclusion of people with diabetes from Sprint. Should I be concerned by that at all? You are correct. Uh, Sprint did exclude uh, patients with diabetes, but let's take a look at the trials where they were included. As mentioned earlier, the STEP trial did include and had almost 20% of its participant cohort uh, were patients with diabetes. In that trial, patients with diabetes had a similar reduction in uh, cardiovascular events. Now, in the ACCORD trial, or the action to control cardiovascular risk in diabetes, the blood pressure component of that trial, which was done in diabetics, had a similar design and blood pressure targets as did Sprint. And it did not show benefit of the less than 120 systolic blood pressure target. Now, there have been multiple explanations uh, to explain this difference, including smaller sample size, its factorial design, and evaluating two different cardiovascular risk reduction strategies. Importantly, CORD uh, is the only well-designed trial that did not show a benefit uh, with the lower blood pressure target in this population. There are many trials that have shown benefit in achieving the lower blood pressure target in patients with diabetes. And in fact, there are some trials that showed the benefit in patients with diabetes, not in patients without diabetes in these uh, hypertension control trials. Now, while Sprint did exclude patients with diabetes, it did include patients with prediabetes and the metabolic syndrome. And in, again, in those populations, the uh, similar benefit was seen when treated uh, to the lower systolic blood pressure target. So Jackson, one of the things I'm hearing you say is I, I don't need to be concerned by the ACCORD trial that there's a sufficient data to say that for my diabetic patients, I should be able to shoot for the same type of goal that I would for my non-diabetic. Is that correct, Jackson? Yeah, to be fair, I think the data is not as strong as, as it is in patients without diabetes. But certainly when it was reviewed along with the other trials in the 2017 uh, ACC uh, AHA uh, hypertension guideline, uh, it was felt that the one less than 130 target was in fact uh, appropriate. And the, uh, the latest American Diabetes Association uh, guideline uh, also suggests that in high-risk diabetics, the uh, less than 130 target uh, is reasonable and recommended. So that's helpful. So that goes back to my original question is what should I shoot for that systolic blood pressure, 120, which is that sprint trial, or is it 130 or even 140? Sounds like to me like you're suggesting 130. Is that what your recommendation is or what the guidelines are recommending at this time? 130 is the, is the target that uh, most guidelines are, in fact, uh, recommending. This includes both nationally as well as internationally. There are actually, there's only uh, two guidelines that are still recommending less than uh, 140, uh, one of which is the, the guideline by professional societies, the American Academy of Family Practice and the American College of Physicians, uh, but that uh, still becomes problematic when, when you look at the evidence. 
There is one proviso that people often talk about, and that is the HEDIS guidelines. The metric for HEDIS targets a goal of less than 140 over 90. And many of the quality improvement measures uh, to assess blood pressure control in practices or institution. Uh, but I think what is important to note is that HEDIS and other quality measures assessing control rates in a practice with using the 140 over metric, those are to assess control rates in a practice or an institution. Uh, clinical guidelines refer to recommended targets in individual patients. One thing to mention, too, is that it's also worth noting that when you look at practices who achieve high rates of control to less than 140 over 90, the median blood pressure in those patient panels is generally about 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury lower. So in order to achieve the target blood pressure of less than 140 over 90 in a practice, the average blood pressure within those practices will be much lower. Again, that, that was really helpful. And as a primary care physician, I, I think part of my confusion is seeing that 140 over 90, but it's great to know that really looking at the evidence under 130 over 80 is our goal and our HEDIS recommendations are really for our practice. And that is also helpful. I want to shift the topic. And I was wondering if you could share some common errors you see in the treatment of hypertension. We've actually uh, looked at the Medicaid data, data that we have uh, actually reported out in 2017 to uh, 2018, hydrochlorothiazide was the top prescribed medication for uh, blood pressure. And the fourth most commonly medication was the dose of 12.5 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. And I see this is problematic. If you look at studies using thiazide uh, type diuretics, chlorothalidone was used in more recent major trials all had is, is the uh, antihypertensive lipid-lowering heart attack prevention trial, SPRINT, we've just mentioned, the systolic hypertension in the elderly program trial, SHEP, uh, and the hypertension detection and follow-up program, the HDFP, uh, all use doses of chlorothalidone between 12 and a half and 25. When we look at trials that use hydrochlorothiazide, uh, there are two trials, uh, the, the HAFI, which is the heart attack a primary prevention in hypertension a study. And, and the, the VA uh, cooperative trials uh, use doses higher than uh, 25 milligram. In fact, use doses of 50 to 100 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. The accomplished trial compared the combination of hydrochlorothiazide with an ACE inhibitor versus a calcium channel blocker, amlodipine, with the ACE inhibitor. The dose of hydrochlorothiazide that was used in that study was 12 and a half to 25 milligrams. And th that showed that it was actually less effective in preventing cardiovascular events uh, than the calcium channel blocker ACE inhibitor arm. And that's despite uh, data from uh, other studies that even in all had that actually showed that the thiazide type diuretic, in this case chlorothalidone, was more effective in preventing the cardiovascular events uh, than the ACE inhibitor, uh, and certainly uh, was no less effective in preventing these events compared to the calcium channel blocker. In summary, the benefit of treating hypertension with thiazide type diuretics has been shown uh, with chlorothalidone in nearly all the trials in which it's been used, while hydrochlorothiazide, uh, the doses of that have been used in clinical trials are much higher than those currently being used in clinical practice. 
In terms of pharmacology of these agents, chlorothaladone is twice as potent as hydrochlorothiazide for blood pressure lowerings on a milligram per milligram basis. Chlorothaladone has a much longer half-life, uh, 40 to 60 hours versus 8 to 15 hours with hydrochlorothiazide. Duration of action is 48 to 72 hours, 2 to 3 days, uh, versus 6 to 24 hours with hydrochlorothiazide. So in addition to the greater potency uh, and more data on reduction in clinical outcomes, chlorothaladone's longer half-life also makes it more tolerant of missed doses uh, when the patient comes in for blood pressure measurement. To summarize, the evidence supports chlorothaladone versus hydrochlorothiazide, but if hydrochlorothiazide is used, it should be used at doses uh, that have been shown effective in the clinical outcome trials, which is 25 to 50 milligrams. Jackson, you, you just blew my mind, and it's upsetting to know that I've been using hydrochlorothiazide at the wrong doses for many years. So thanks so much for reviewing that and the importance of that chlorothaladone has the evidence behind it. And if you're going to use hydrochlorothiazide, you got to go higher dose. That 12.5 milligram hydrochlorothiazide is not going to cut it. Goodness. Any hypothesis on why hydrochlorothiazide has been a mainstay of treatment for us when the evidence seems to support so overwhelmingly chlorothaladone? It's been greater usage of hydrochlorothiazide, a greater availability, and there is a slight cost difference between hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothaladone. Even though both are generic, there is a, the lesser use of chlorothaladone. In some plants, will cost a little bit extra, but just as importantly, the greater availability of hydrochlorothiazide in fixed dose combination. Though the doses that are used in fixed dose combinations are generally in doses of 12 and a half to 25 milligrams per day in order to get higher doses of hydrochlorothiazide, you generally have to use more than one pill, which essentially defeats the advantage of the fixed dose combination. So those are probably the major reasons. And one of the challenges that that has in fact produced is that the use of fixed dose combinations, the use of lower doses of hydrochlorothiazide in those combinations Many of the uh, quality improvement programs will recommend fixed-dose combinations as initial therapy in patients with hypertension. And in fact, even the most recent guideline uh, does recommend fixed-dose combination. But in the quality improvement programs, what we generally see is that even though you will see an increase in blood pressure control with the use of fixed-dose combinations, uh, but you still see a gap between control rates in black populations and non-black populations uh, with the use of those strategies. The reason for mentioning that is in Sprint, uh, with the use of chlorothaladone in that regimen, there was no racial difference. In other words, black patients were able to have an average systolic blood pressure of 119 in the intensive arm were able to achieve the, the target in patients in the SPRINT trial as non-blacks. There was no racial or ethnic difference in, in blood pressure uh, control rates or achieved blood pressure level. Thanks so much for sharing that. I do have to share, though, a story or event that happened to me in a clinic a few months ago. I was uh, prescribing chlorothaladone, and one of my team members challenged me on it, and they mentioned a study from 2017 that didn't show any benefit of chlorothaladone versus hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension, even suggested some safety benefit when using hydrochlorothiazide. Help me out with this one. Um, I love working in teams. I love working in residency clinics, but sometimes I get challenged and that's great. I get to learn something. So how do I reconcile this surprising finding? How do I reconcile that 2017 study? Uh, that was an observational study looking at claims data. So it, it was a database study 
which uh, opens it up to multiple potential problems. I know the group. It's a very uh, strong group at Columbia uh, that do those types of database studies. There are some uh, significant potential problems with those types of analyses. Uh, there has not been a head-to-head trial looking at uh, hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothaladone. But even though there has not been a head-to-head trial, very high-quality randomized controlled trials have consistently shown benefit with uh, chlorothaladone. But one exception, which cannot be said for the use of low-dose hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, and also in, in that database study, uh, likely most of the patients in that study uh, were using low-dose of uh, hydrochlorothiazide compared to the usual much higher dose of chlorothaladone. There is a head-to-head trial that is now underway within the VA health system that is a direct head-to-head comparison between uh, 25 and 50 of hydrochlorothiazide uh, compared to uh, 12 and a half and 25 of chlorothaladone. I just am grateful for the wealth of knowledge that you have. Thanks, Jackson. Any tips you would love to share? Any additional tips for us? Well, there's one topic that is sometimes overlooked, and that is the fact that when we take blood pressures in the clinic, despite the importance of hypertension and the importance of achieving the target blood pressures, the way in which blood pressures are measured within the clinics is challenging. Probably the most important data that is collected has the most problems and is probably the least accurate of, of the data that we collect within our clinics. And I would simply remind providers that it is clearly important for patients to be seated in a chair with a back rather than on the exam table. It is important to have their feet flat on the floor. It's important to rest for the five minutes. It's important to have an empty bladder. Caffeine and exercise and smoking should not have been done within the past 30 minutes. Patients need to be resting quietly. The idea of asking, collecting data on patients, asking questions, uh, that has been shown to, in fact, elevate blood pressure uh, and make it less accurate. So patients need to be seated for five minutes quietly, need to use proper technique, adequate the uh, proper size uh, blood pressure cuff. Uh, The measurement instrument needs to be a validated one. The arm needs to be supported and uh, then uh, multiple blood pressures obtained. This becomes a challenge in collecting these data in offices and trying to incorporate that into the workflow, but that's where we are. We need to do a much better job in order to achieve the results that we see within the clinical studies. And I certainly see that. I I think I often see patients because of the workflow and attempt to try just move things along. People immediately sit down and then they get their blood pressure checked right away and really requires us to have change in our workflow in order to be able to get accurate readings. Otherwise, we are making inaccurate uh, diagnoses because we have incorrect data. Well, Jackson, we're, we're, we're low on our time now. I have to tell you, it's just been an honor talking to you. It is, uh, you're a wealth of information, and this has been really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I want to share with the listeners that so much of this information can be found on the cardio website. There's tables that list all the different guidelines. There's tables related to the different studies and also information on how to properly obtain and measure a blood pressure. So I encourage everyone to take a look at our cardio website, cardio.org. And thank you, Jackson, again. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. 
This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.